Welcome to the American Landman Podcast Show number 20. All right, guys, welcome back to this week's episode of the American Landman. I'm your host, Neil Hogger, Whitetail Properties Land Specialist in Northwest Wisconsin, and I am recording from the American Landman Studios. Today, we have a kind of a different conversation um, with a land manager, a hunter, a landowner, and real estate agent, Mark Haslam, out of the Southeast. Mark hails from the Savannah, Georgia area, and he's also a landowner. His family and he own and manage about 2,000 acres in the Southeast. And I thought this would be kind of an interesting conversation because we don't typically hear uh, about land in the Southeast. Uh, we always talk about the Midwest whitetails. So uh, Mark's going to walk us through uh, a little bit of how the property management styles and techniques differ. We're going to focus a little bit on bobwhite quail um, habitat. We're going to move on to turkey habitat. And of course, we're going to round it out with some whitetail uh, habitat and management and how to create a whitetail dream because he's done a great job down there. He did such a great job that he was named the 2020 National Deer Association Deer Manager of the Year. That's a pretty uh, prestigious uh, uh, title that he got. He's also a contributing editor to the Meat Eater um, website and podcast. He has his own website um, that is called the Southeast Whitetail Habitat Conservation and Venison uh, website. And he actually has a uh, podcast by the same title Southeast Whitetail. So Mark is an interesting uh, guy. We're going to talk talk to him and bring him in. And uh, here we go. Let's get to it. Well, I want to introduce a new sponsor of the American Land Man podcast, and that is Swamp Buck Camo. Swamp Buck Camo got its start in northern Wisconsin, so you know that they know cold weather and deer hunting. And they've come out with a proprietary uh, camo that I'm looking at in a really good-looking uh, cold weather jacket in the gray swamp buck pattern. It's listed for sale at $119, so it's a, definitely a great price. And I think they actually started selling their product out of Shields, so you might find them at a retail store if you have a Shields sporting goods nearby. Um, but one thing that intrigues me about this is the price. It seems to be very affordable. Um, definitely, if they're hunting in northern Wisconsin, they know cold weather, so they probably have developed a great line of clothing and uh, you may be seeing this showing up in my videos at the American Landman vlog very soon because I'll be uh, trying this product out for myself, wearing it on my daily activities and I'm definitely going to put it to use. And if you're interested in trying some Swamp Buck Camo, give them a call, order from their website, swampbuck.com, however you get a hold of them, but give them the code ALM. 25 American Landman 25 ALM 25 and you'll get $25 off your first order. Give them a try. Let me know how it's working for you. Swampbuckcamo.com. Get that buck. Mark Aslam, welcome to the show. Thanks, Neil. I appreciate you having me on and inviting me on your podcast. Yeah. I've been looking forward to this. Well, I, I've, I've been looking forward to it too because everybody I seem to talk to is coming, you know, from that Midwestern grain belt of uh, of the Midwest. And I'm in the American Landman Studios here in Northwest uh, Wisconsin. But one of my followers from my YouTube channel actually called me up and said, Hey, I like your, the podcast, but why don't you get somebody from my neck of the woods? And he lived down in Savannah, Georgia. And I said, well, yeah, I'd like to, do you know anybody down there? And he recommended you. So that's, that's how I found you. That's, uh, that's very cool to hear that connection. 
I appreciate that. And I, and I, I have connected with that, with your, uh, with your viewer on YouTube and, um, reached out to him and, uh, we might be uh, connecting sometime as well. Awesome. Well, he actually, uh, reached out to me, uh, I don't know, six months ago, eight months ago, we started chatting and one thing led to another. And he said, Hey, how do I become a guy like you? And I said, what do you mean? You want to work for whitetail properties? And he says, I might. And next thing you know, he's, uh, now he's hired. And I think he actually might've gone through training and I'm going to meet him in person for the first time in, in July. So yeah, it's amazing how the, how the social media connects like-minded people. And it now has led him into a different career path, but, uh, well, let's go ahead and let's introduce, uh, you Mark to the world the, all the folks that don't, don't know you. Um, uh, Mark is part of the meat eater crew. He's writing blogs and doing vlogs, but, uh, he's a deer hunter and manager from Georgia, which isn't common. We don't hear a lot uh, of guys from there. Um, he wouldn't call himself a property consultant, even though he did get the National Deer Association Deer Manager of the Year, but he's doing some pretty, pretty cool things on his own family farm. Uh, and he does help friends and family members uh, improve their habitat and hunting setups through timber management, trail camera surveys, and, and more. So I thought we would uh, have you on, Mark, and talk a little bit about some of the challenges of managing habitat for deer in the Southeast, because I could tell you this, I, I don't know much myself. So a lot of the questions I'm going to ask you as you're talking um will be because i'm curious myself i have hunted down there I actually killed a buck down there nothing big but i did kill something in the in south carolina and uh, so i can kind of relate to it and i pig hunted down there which is maybe part of your management story so i love the area so welcome to the show mark tell us about more about yourself thanks Neil. i appreciate the uh introduction um yeah i um let's see uh, a little bit about myself um my career has been real estate. I've, I've been in real estate ever since um, I got out of college in 2005 and uh, primarily do commercial investment uh, acquisitions. And uh, included with that is um, land, rec recreational tracks, timber tracks, farm tracks, hunting tracks, uh, stuff like that. And that, that's what kind of led us into uh, our farm. Uh, a family, a father purchased in 2006. Um, and that was really, you know, I grew up hunting, um, all my life, but we were, um, you know, in hunting clubs from the time I was old enough to walk, um, and then getting out of college. And then when my father picked, uh, purchased that, the farm, that's when, uh, my love and passion for hunting and really not so much hunting, but, but land and habitat management really exploded. Um, as we, over the past, I think this is our 17th season coming up. Uh, we've taken our time, but really, um, had a huge learning curve and, um, uh, managing our land. And that's, that's been my passion and hobby. So that's what led me into kind of changing up my Instagram, uh, to make it more, you know, showcasing what I'm doing in the farm, hunting wise, habitat wise, uh, networking with people like yourself, making connections. Um, making connections with, at, at a time, Quality Deer Management Association, which is now the National Deer Association. And, um, and then about and two years ago, I, I, well, I've actually had this idea for a couple of years about doing something a little bit more to showcase and to show what I'm doing uh, on our property in South Carolina. And that's when I decided to launch a website, southeastwhitetail.com. Uh, it's an original article-based website. Um, and this past February, I launched my uh, uh, podcast, 
Southeast White Veil. And that was really just to kind of expand on things I'm doing uh, with writing and stuff at the farm. And um, so that's what I'm doing right now. That's very cool. Well, then take us through um, 17 years ago. You're in real estate or your parents are or you got interested and you wanted to go buy a farm. You came across your place. Why don't you start there and tell us a story of uh, from then until now? Well, <laughs> how much time do we have to, <laughs> to uh, cover that? But, you know, I guess where we where we ended up, because we, we live in Savannah, um, or now my father has moved over to South Carolina, but Savannah's right on the South Carolina-Georgia border, right on the Savannah River. And so, yes, I, I have always lived in Savannah, front coast, on the border, South Carolina, but I've hunted my entire life in South Carolina. Um, I have I do hunt in Georgia some, but our hunting club that I mentioned that we were in for a long time was in uh, Jasper County, South Carolina. And uh, by the time I was getting out of college, um, I thought I was thinking about making uh, uh, – investment purchase uh, a timber track for the timber investment in the southeast uh there's a, a you know a large contingency of land that's planted in pine trees for income a tree farm and we also are big hunters so it, it you know it, it could be beneficial that way obviously to have some hunting land and we where we ended up is uh, a pocket in south carolina that is about two hours from the coast so two hours from savannah from Buford, Lofton, Elton Head, South Carolina, and about an hour or so south of Columbia, South Carolina, and um, about an hour east of Augusta, Georgia. So we're in this pocket um, that's, you know, an hour, two hours from any major cities. And that's where really why we ended up there, because it was a raw piece of land that had a ton of potential, but it just, it, it, it was, um, it was some land that was broken up over a very old farm back in the day, and it had been passed down generation by generation. And I think there was like twelve or fourteen different heirs that had a sign off on it, but they were they were absentee owners, and they all lived pretty much out of state, had no connection to the land, and had a forester that uh, managed the timber, sent them checks, and then hunt, and then leased out the hunting rights. So. It was a good raw piece of land for us to purchase, a very good per- very good uh, purchase price at the time. And um, and then also, you know, going back to that pocket of area, as you get further from major cities, the price, you know, of dirt dips down and then it's going to pick back up. But there's definitely a trade-off as far as, you know, do you want to pay more for the land and be closer to, you know, where you live or be a little bit further out? And that, I, I, I definitely think there's some, pros and cons to that. But over the past 17 years, we really took our time and uh, started to manipulate the land, work on the habitat, do, do some forestry work. And um, that's kind of where we are now. It, it, it's, uh, I would say the past probably eight to 10 years, we really had the property steamrolling and, and um, running like a pretty, pretty good, well-oiled machine. Not to say there's always something we can't fix or do better. There's always something. Yeah, sure. So when you bought the land on a cost per acre basis, what was it then? And what do you think your land might sell for now if you were to put it on the market? It was under 2,000 an acre in 2006. So I think it was like 1,600 and some change per acre at the time. Um, And that was, 
you know, back in the early 2000s, I mean, that's what a lot of land in you know, Georgia, South Carolina was going for, you know, under 2,000 uh, an acre. Even with the, the good t- pine timber that was available? Yeah. But, you know, these, when I say this was a, was a raw piece of land, um, it, it, was, it was managed well, but it wasn't like its full capacity as far as the timber management. It, it was a lot of the trees were hand-planted pine trees as opposed to machine planted um so more of a natural look so it, it, it had a you know from that perspective it was great aesthetically but it wasn't necessarily maximizing you know uh the amount of trees you could plant and ultimately but yeah you know back then that was yeah i mean when you get an hour from a major city you were seeing land prices well under two thousand an acre and of course it all depends on you know so much of the value in and the, and the pricing of land down here depends on the inventory of trees. That's interesting. Value, yeah. You know, you know, the standing, you got the price of the dirt, and then it's pretty much the value, the standing value of crop of trees. And then, you know, ag land, but, you know, ag, ag land, you don't, you don't really make, you're not going to make money uh, leasing out the farming or hunting rights. It's really coming from that long term investment of, of the timber and thinning and timber sales. And to make good money, in the timber sales, you can't buy a forty. You got you're buying thousands of acres if you're that type of buyer. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, of course, you can you can make more money with more land you have. But I think, and this is what we've started to do a while back. But the people, uh, I mean, I, I, I talk a lot about diversity. Um, you know, diversity. I mean, that's you know, no, uh, you know, I didn't invent that as far as wildlife habitat, but. When you diversify the landscape and you get and you avoid the monoculture of pine trees, plant of pine trees, then you get into an area where you have different age class of pine trees and you have more of a rotation of income checks coming in because you're more consistently cutting, thinning, clear cutting, and of course it's not big sections, but you're um, cutting a lot more frequently, and that can help. Uh, with you know income coming in to offset the hearing costs of the property. Okay, yeah, you know, so as I I'm looking through some of your recent blog posts, and I I definitely see a pattern of what you like to talk about, and I think this podcast can be about that, and that is management and. It, how it relates to value because you're a sales guy and I'm sure you got a plan when you're doing this, you know what these things can do. So I'm looking at three particular um, po- uh, vlogs that you did uh, on the Mediator website, how to create fawning cover for whitetails, the most underrated type of food plot and how to improve pine stand habitat for whitetails. Um, the folks that listen to this obviously love to hunt and I'm sure people are, are going to, uh, listen to this podcast because they want to hear about hunting in the Southeast from a guy who's managing land. Can you, can you speak to both? Can you take us down? How do you look at a track of land that may be the majority of people look at it for timber only, or they maybe want to look at, at it for hunting leasing and the, maybe the club atmosphere, because that's different than here. We don't have these hunting clubs, but I think these properties can be both, or maybe they can't. Can you can you can you expound on that? Can they both be uh, in, you know uh, maintained for in, maximum income for the for the tree crop and then also 
uh, the wildlife and hunting aspect. Yeah, because I, I see, well, I come across a lot of people that don't understand what we do and our passion for land. Yeah. And when they start talking about investing in property, um, they look at it with these like blinders on. It's southeast and there's pine and I'm going to grow trees. That's my investment. Or I'm a hunter and I'm going to improve it for hunting and that's why I bought it and that's my goal. I'd like to, I'm just thinking there's got to be a combination of both if that's possible. Yeah. Hey guys, I just want to take a minute to talk about a great seed blend that I have been planting on my farm. I've got about three and a half, maybe four acres in this seed blend by Vitalized Seed Company. And um, so far I'm really impressed uh, with the system. It's a real simple one two system in the fall which is when i started i used the carbon load and carbon load has about 16 seeds in this blend um, from uh, four types of clover there's four types of brassica some are more leafy uh, and others are meant to grow bigger bulbs there's uh, grasses in the form of wheat and triticale and oats and it's just a very diverse blend and it's just a great uh, blend that will attract from the moment it starts popping out of the soil all the way to late season when they're digging up the bulbs and eating eating it. But the reason that I'm really interested in this is because of the soil benefits of this system. So the fall is the carbon load and it's meant to have a lot of volume. It's going to be a great fall attraction for the deer. But in the spring, I'm going to terminate this uh, this foliage. And that is gonna lay on top of my soil and it's gonna to start to feed my soil. And then I'll plant into this the second phase, which is Nitro Boost. And Nitro Boost is meant to sequester nitrogen that's right over the surface of my food plots in the atmosphere. So therefore decreasing the amount of chemical inputs that I'm gonna to have to put into my soil, which is something I'm trying to my best to get away from. I may not get away from it 100%, but I'm definitely gonna reduce my input costs due to this one, two system. So check them out, go to vitalizedseed.com um, and look at the seed blends. And if you're interested, I'm in Western Wisconsin, I can sell this product to you. I have uh, it in stock most likely. And if I can, I could get it ordered and we'll ship it to you for free. Uh, Vitalized Seed Company, soil benefits with a one, two system, just the way nature intended. Yeah, well, I absolutely think there is. And that was, um, that was pretty much the gist of that first article that, that you're referring to, um, as far as pine stand management for whitetails, and the title is for whitetails, but it's so much of it is for you know wildlife across the board. Um, yeah, you know, and that was pretty. I mean, pretty much summing up that article is that you know a lot of the south is one is viewed as. I mean, even my hunters hunters down here viewed as you know pine farms um, are not good for wildlife. And quite frankly, a lot of that's true. So much of that's true because our, our forestry practices for a long time have been drifting away from what the natural ecosystems once were. And I know that when you're doing, you know, planting tree farms, that's not a natural ecosystem per se because you're planting them. But um, I'm meaning fire induced. I mean, you know, so much of the South, you, I mean, it was primarily dominated by longleaf, which was managed naturally by natural fire. Um, but anyways, you know, so much of the forestry practices that, and I, can't, I I'm not a history buff on forestry, so I can't think of when it started, but it was all about maximizing your income from growing and selling pine trees, which makes sense, right? Well, so much of what, you know, the forestry industry was doing was just, you know, maximizing, planting the trees, 
and then killing off any competition that would, you know, compete with the pine tree because that's your that's your crop. And you and a lot of, you know, a lot of herbicide use, chemical use, kill off other trees, other competition, which means food and forage and cover and safety for deer, for turkey, for quail. And so there's, you know, a lot of discussion as far as forestry practices really doing being detrimental for the bobwhite quail in the southeast. I think if you talk to many people that were around in the, you know, 60s and 70s, they'll tell you, you know, back in the day, you go out the country anywhere in the southeast and you're going to hear quail whistling and singing. And you just don't see that much anymore. Uh, I mean, you know, it, it, it's with farming practices and forestry. So I say all that because that's what a lot of these pine farms are. And um, there's a way, and there's definitely been a resurgence we're seeing or push um, in some of the habitat, wildlife, you know, medium content out there as far as being more holistic, being more natural. Um, you know, you don't need to bush hog your rows and have everything look like a golf course. You know, have it have it more natural, fit, have more fit cover. And so, with 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 tree farms, pine farms, playing the pines, it's like what I mentioned earlier, um, as far as divert, diversifying your pine stand. If you have one age class of pine trees, that means that at the same time you're going to you're going to need to thin them all. You're going to need to thin them again the second time about the same time. And then you're going to be in a second situation where it's time to cut. Maybe the trees have gotten to the size where they need to be cut, or maybe the prices are good. Maybe the price for the timber is really great right now, so you need to cut. But they're all the age, they're all the same age crop pine trees. And then what are you doing? Are you clear cutting your entire farm? That's not really good. So what we have been doing is just staggering out, taking a you know sections of maybe fifty, maybe five to fifty acres or a hundred acres, and clear cutting, and then replanting pine trees. And in the, in the south, we have such a long growing season. I mean, the growing season really starts you know into February, first of March, and it goes all the way really to the first frost, which is early about early November. So when you clear cut um, a section. Um, you know, you, you would typically replant pine trees the following January, February dormant season, as long as you have time to spray for any kind of volunteer trees popping up. And then within a year to a year and a half or two years, it's going to be a really nasty thicket, depending on the elevation and the soil. Within one to maybe two or three years, it's going to be a nasty thicket and a good bedding site for deer, fawning cover for the next anywhere from six to 12 years depending, again, on the soil um, and maybe previous chemical use. And so with that, you've got good bedding. And then, you know, adjacent to that clear-cut site, you could have um, some pine trees, maybe that are 20-plus years old, that you thin, maybe thin again a second time, you put, but you put that older age class pine trees in a burn rotation. Maybe burn it. We tend to burn every about three years. And by burning... You're creating and producing and maintaining all that natural uh, forage and browse for deer, depending on when you burn. So, I mean, right right there, you've got bedding, great fawning cover and bedding for deer, bucks, fawns, does, with the, with a young pine thickets, and then you've got the natural food when you maintain pine trees. You know, open the canopy, thin them out and then burn them, and then you've got natural food. So, you know, you don't necessarily have to have 
acres and acres of, of you know oak trees and acorns. It is good to plant oak trees around the property to maintain some, but you can absolutely create excellent bedding cover and natural food source with a you know within a pine farm. How many acres is the family farm right now? We're right at two thousand acres. Two thousand. Okay, that's pretty sizable. I'm looking at some photos. I'm not. I'm assuming that maybe some of these are taken from the family farm, and I'm looking at one in particular, how to improve what pine stand habitat for whitetails. That picture there looks surprisingly similar to an area that is in my county where my farm is, and it's called the Barrens area of Polk County. Fairly flat. Um, I'm guessing just by that types of trees, fairly sandy soil. Um, I see oak brush. It looks like it's been burned and opened up, and then it's kind of early successional grasses and woody brows are popping up. Um, is your what is that what your soil is? Is it typically sandy there? Is that why the pines are growing? We do have a mix. Um, some of the land is um, we've got a couple Carolina bays, which that's a geological land feature term. And I think the idea was that a long time ago, some meteor meteors hit the, hit the earth and made these little big kind of round oval depressions. Um, and if you look at an aerial map, you can see these big aerial depressions. And most of them in the south are planting pine trees or, you know, uh, they could be wetlands. But most of our Carolina bays, which are lower, low, lower lying, but very good, dark, rich soil that holds good moisture. Um, ours, a long time ago, were, were ditched. Uh, someone put in some pretty heavy ditching systems to keep it drained because it is a natural uh, depression. So we do have those. We do have some creek systems that are that are fed from you know springs, um, and we do have some sandier sandier soils. And so uh, the sandier soils, we have a lot of longleaf planted. Those with longleaf contrast do better uh, typically in sandy soils. That photo, if you're looking. The article on meatandeer.com, that was, that was a photo they used. That, um, that, that photo is a little more, is a lot more open than what we have at our place. Um, we don't have, um, areas that, that photo kind of looks more of like a quail plantation look, in my opinion, um, where, but with pine trees are thinned out a little bit more, thinned out, you know, enough to where you can bird hunt around, you know, in that timber. Yeah. I've never, I've never bobbed boy quailed, but I have a hunted, uh, I not on purpose, I guess. I envision these Southern gentlemen hunts where you've got a horse drawn carriage and the guy sits up there and he's got a couple English pointers out there running around and they lock up and they get down and walk in to shoot. Um, I don't know if I'm, uh, if I'm portraying that right, but that's what I have in my head. Someday I, I wanted to go down there and do it. Is this habitat, is that good deer habitat? Can you do both, bobwhite and whitetail? And is this what people are looking for? Okay, so to answer your question, yes, you can do both. You can absolutely do both. But there's a way There's a way of doing both. But what you just described, you know, with the horse-drawn uh, buggies and yeah, so much, when people think of the, of the quail plantations that are in the south, um, those timber uh that that type of timber we call a quail cut you know no, no, no shocker there a quail cut because 
again, like I mentioned earlier, it, the pines are thinned very, very heavy. And they're thinned to where you've got some trees um, and you're maintaining trees, but it's extremely open and designed more for, you know, shooting a shotgun to be able to get more shots off. Um, and a lot of times those areas are burned much, much more than like what we're doing at our farm. And sometimes those quail, quail cut places, can they can burn. I mean, there's some plantations that I drive past every time that I go, that I go to my farm that, I mean, they burn the woods every single year. Mm. Like they'll burn most of the land, like the same, the same sections every single year. And so what that does is just, it just pretty much kills off, uh, you know, most new growth, unless it's like a long, you know, a long leaf seedling, but it mostly has grasses. So it's not that tight. It's not really great for white tails and it's okay for quail, but I think it's more, it's better for the, for the pin raised release quail. That 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 type of presentation habitat, everything. And I'm I'm no quail expert, but everything I've read and heard biologists talk about is that 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 looks not really ideal if you're trying to grow and maintain wild quail. That's more kind of pen raised quail and really ideal setup for the hunting aspect, for the shooting, for the dogs to work, for you to you know get shots off of coveys. But to answer your question. A lot of what I just talked about, about managing pine trees, so much of that is excellent for quail. You know, you know, not not maintaining your farm like a golf course, you know, leaving, uh, you know, leaving some thicker areas of grass around fence lines, around hedgerows, um, you know, burning, burning your land, doing early successional disking, maintaining that early successional growth. Um, there's so much that natural food that is in the native seed bank that is excellent for, you know, wild birds, turkeys, and quail. Um, and so the thickets are, is really what the quail need in the south, and that can be obtained by disking, early successional disking and fire, but really just ground disturbance. You know, you're, whether you're doing what I just mentioned before or, or you're doing forestry work, you know, you're clear cutting, you're thinning, that, that ground disturbance get the native seed bank growing, you get thickets, you get briar thickets, and that's the safety that quail need, wild quail need from the predators. And quail, we've always kind of, we, the farm always already had wild quail on it. We have expanded uh, on the population, but from what I see, quail can be a little more adaptive in there, can and find some better nesting sites, in my opinion, than like wild turkeys. Um, and maybe that's just the size of quail, and they're able to get in some thicker areas. But yeah, I mean, you, you can absolutely maintain your habitat for deer, turkey, and quail, doing it the right way, you know, edge feathering, all of that. Um, but that that quail plantation look is really kind of more designed for the hunting aspect, not so much, you know, growing and maintaining mm-hmm. wild well, let's go down that path. Okay, so you, you named three species that I'm sure most people, if you got a place in Savannah, Georgia, and you want to get out to the country to your plantation, your farm, whatever you want to call it, you're probably going to be chasing deer, turkey. You wouldn't mind chasing quail because they're rare. Can you walk us down the path and say, okay, you got you just bought yourself a 500-acre plantation farm, 
and you want to start managing it and you can improve certain areas of it for for different species and kind of with that in mind but if you started with quail and you wanted to start to improve your habitat for quail what would you do and then take us on to turkey and deer for quail i would i would start by doing assessment on the land and seeing you know is there enough cover thickets for quail and all they, they don't really need much they need you know the the the, the briar thickets, uh, thick grass around good you know good food sources for them, around you know fields and in some uh, areas that they can you know move around and feed. So I would, um, depending on the type of property, look at look at doing some burning. Um, burning you can generate a lot of seed production, uh, partridge peas, different different native native plants that can help for quail, and then I would. Look at doing some early successional disking, or maybe if you have some old fields, um, work in the old fields and just trying to create some, again, natural food. And then also with a natural food, when you're doing that kind of work, you're also creating uh, the safety cover for the nest. So um, that's what I would, I would start there. And is there a time of the year that you recommend the disking? Um, Because I know up here, obviously, I think we have two times of the year in in the upper Midwest where I'm at, spring or fall. That's when you're going to get a different response. Is that the same in the Southeast? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, if if you're looking for that that early successional uh, growth, you you, you can start in December and go through maybe like February and just barely break the ground surface. You know, just just a light disc. You don't really want to go too deep. Maybe a couple inches. Um, that's when you could do it. Burning, you know, most people burn in the dormant season for a number of reasons, but for safety. Um, but you can start burning. You know, most people wait until after the season's over in January and February, um, and then they stop. Um, you know, in the spring. And but when you when you burn down here in the, I mean, I think it's pretty much everywhere in the dormant growing season. You 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 promote more grasses. And then if you burn in the growing season, like during the summer or, or early fall, you'll promote more forbs. So um, I would probably do most of the work in the, in the, in the off season, you know, in, in the winter and, and, and early spring because they breed, well, what, well if I have it right, they, they, they breed in the spring and summer and then they're having, they're laying the nest and uh, their young quail or chicks are hatching in I think early fall. So you know you, you could you could easily do work in the early part of the year to help prep for the breeding season and um and the young quail that are going to hit the ground. Okay, hey guys, I just want to take a minute to talk about one of the sponsors of the show, and that is Packer Max uh, HD, the cult of Packer that has hit the market by storm. And I picked up one of these units this fall, and I've been using it now to help plant my fall food plots. And I got to tell you, I am super impressed with uh, the results of this uh, Packer, cult of Packer. Um, I definitely have gotten germination, probably twice the germination that I would have gotten or have gotten on other fields. I was so amazed by the difference. And I called Lincoln, the owner, and he kind of chuckled because he's obviously seen this before. And he says, yeah, 100% of your seed went down and 100% of your seed went came up. And I would tell you that is 100% true because I planted probably about 14 days ago from when I recorded this uh, promo here. And the amount of germination that I got on this plot versus 
others where I did not use the Packer Max uh, is notably different. So guys, if you haven't tried uh, the Packer Max, then you need to give it a shot and you can use a promo code ALM25 and get $25 off a unit. And it comes in two different sizes. So there's a four foot uh, size, which is what I've got. And there's also an eight foot size and there's even a three point hitch model. So if you have a tractor that you want to use it on, uh, you can put it to uh, hook it to your back of your John Deere or whatever. Uh, but it's a very thick, about a quarter inch rotomolded polyethylene drum, and it's really durable. I mean, my soil is pretty rock free, but I definitely rolled this to some food plots and rolled over the top of uh, some rocks that were in the trails without damaging this unit. So I do, I wouldn't say I abuse it by any means, I, I slow down, but that was one of my worries is how is this polyethylene drum going to work but i'm going to tell you it's fine it does excellent just kind of take your time get easy rolling over the top of any rocks and you're going to be fine so uh check them out um the whole packer max lineup and if you decide to purchase one use the promo code alm25 and lincoln will give you 25 bucks off your own packer max hd system all right turkey how do you how do you grow turkey in southeast well that's the million dollar question right now <laughs> With the turkey population, eastern wild turkey. Um, yeah, they're they're really, crashing all over the place. Everybody's saying yeah. so. I'm not expecting you to figure it out in this conversation, but take your best shot. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, you know, this kind of ties back into what you know what you asked earlier about the you know, pine stand management. And when going back to these forestry, these kind of these kind of extreme forestry practices, that that was so detrimental for quail and turkey because you're getting rid of ground cover. You're getting rid of very good nesting sites, and so with those extreme forestry practices, I mean, you know, you're left with pine trees and nearly just no ground cover. So with turkeys, it really, I mean, it's very, it's very similar to quail, cover and food, and it's very similar practices. Burning prescribed fire is probably one of the best management tools, in my opinion, for wild turkeys. I mean, what you generate. Um, from burning food-wise, they're coming in there eating bugs, dead bugs, and then, and then you also have a ton of uh, new growth coming up that they'll eat, just like quail. Um, and I know some people can have some concerns as far as burning with turkeys. You know, burning in the spring because you don't want to burn up, you know, a nesting site. You, you know. But you know, I've heard a lot of biologists talk about it in the in the the outcome, the pros of burning. What you get out of it is 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 much more beneficial if you were to burn up a nest. But if you do it the right way, you can pick areas to burn where where, where turkeys should not be nesting. I'm not saying that they're not they might not nest in those areas, but we typically pick sites if we burn them later in the spring that maybe at that point if, if, if turkeys have already bred and maybe they're nesting. We'll choose areas to burn where they should not be nesting. They're, they're, they're very open, and they need to be burned. So um, that's, you know, one answer to the concern a lot of people have. And, it's, you know, the rest for turkeys is we've had a lot of success planting naked oats, uh, planting oats um, as a good food plot in the fall. Um, our fall cool season food plots will come in and plant uh, a, a variety of things, but naked oats. We've done a lot of for a while, and you can buy you can buy a bushel of oats anywhere from five to nine dollars, which is extremely inexpensive. You can just kind of throw it out, 
you can disc it in or use a grain drill. Um, and so with that, we've been going on top of our food, most of our food plot, and then all the ag fields that the release up to a farmer and planting oats um, in the October and keeping it up all the way through until we spray them, kill them off in the spring. And so that is just an incredible food source uh, for turkeys and for the young poults when they hit the ground. Um, you got the oat itself, the seed, but then you have so many bugs that just get lugged up in those fields. Food, yeah. uh, grasshoppers, all kinds of, all kinds of bugs. Same thing, same thing up here. I've been, I've been doing that on my farm. I just actually planted a second round of, of grain seed into standing rye. And one of the, one of the responses that I found for turkeys was it would be an early green, uh, food source. They were coming through and picking off the tender shoots and stuff. But then when it got, you know, six, 10, two foot tall, now they were actually nesting in it. And I would leave them alone and I wouldn't go back in there and terminate it until probably I would say late May, early June, maybe even this year was in late June. That time they had done their nesting and and I was walking through. I actually just did this yesterday. I walked through and I found a little depression and I felt it underneath my foot and I I don't know, I just reached down and was like, what, what was that? And there was a little depression in the rye where I had found some eggs and they were hatched and they were open and they weren't, they weren't all crushed. So I knew I hadn't drove across them when I, when I was in there, uh, terminating that rye, they, they actually hatched. Otherwise I think if I, unless I hit that, 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 uh, nest straight on, I don't know, just the look yeah. of it. I don't think I did. I think they, they hatched. Um, so yeah, it was great food. And I, man, did I notice the amount of bugs in there? bugs and and little shoots and then there was that i think those oats and the rye the stems make make they make little channels between them because it's like one seed grows four or five stems and then there's another one four or five inches over but between it is dirt it was almost like whole um alleys that they could move around in there and then the avian predators i think they have a harder time dropping in on them so it yeah on many levels um, it, it's really helped. And I've, I've seen up on my farm, I mean, I've got a resident flock of probably 30 plus turkeys that I see pretty regularly moving through and they're always around those rye and oat plots. So I would, I think that's the same up here. It's no different. Yeah. Good. Like All right. Well, let's move on to uh whitetail. Um, what, what is it? What does a good whitetail habitat look like in the Southeast and how do you improve it? Good whitetail habitat. Uh, in the southeast, really, I mean, I, you know, a, a lot of it ties back into what we talked about so far with Bob White Quail and the Eastern Wild Turkey is, you know, it's it's something everybody knows. It's having safety, uh, food, and cover. And so um, what we've had a lot of success with and what's really worked for us is, you know, you know avoiding the pine monoculture, you know, consistently with deer You've got, in my opinion, you've got to consistently maintain bedding thickets. And that sounds obvious, but if your bedding thickets, if a lot of them are, are going to be young pine thickets, you've got to have a plan to consistently clear cut smaller sections of, 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 of pines to replant them for those next pine thickets, meaning that you've got to have a handle as far as knowing 
when those time tickets are going to become too open. So I mentioned this earlier with young pine trees. Depending on the soil, they will be dense thickets that you cannot see through. You know, loaded with briars and thick enough to where you and I don't want to go through there, even with briar pants. And a predator definitely doesn't want to go in there as well. That can last anywhere from maybe six or maybe 10 or 12 years. Well, at that point, you're going to be able to just see right through the bottom. You know, pine trees grow up tall. You can see right through the bottom. Well, that's not good really for much. And then there's this gap of years between that. You lose it for thinning thickets, and then you thin them. Which the thinning, the first thinning could be anywhere around 15 years, give or take, depending on a lot of different variables. When you thin it that first time, then you can move into producing food in those sites from opening the canopy up, ground disturbance, fire, everything we've already talked about. Well, um, you know, so you've got to have a handle as far as, okay, I've got this young pine thicket. When am I going to lose that for bedding? When is it going to become too open for fawns, for deer, for, for, for turkeys, whatever? And then I need to plan on cutting another section, you know, going, getting, you know, contacting a forestal or a timber company. Starting that process, starting to try to get bids and a contract, and it takes a while to really get a crew on site so that we cut it, and then we have time to spray it, and then we have time to plant it, and then it's got to grow for a couple of years to become a new pine tree. So you definitely don't want to be in a situation where you've lost your primary, your, your primary um, thicket, bedding thicket, and then you've got a gap of time where you don't have one. And of course, in the south, because it's so thick down here and dense, deer bed everywhere. And that's one of the challenges from hunting. They can bed anywhere and everywhere. But when you create and maintain those pine thickets and, and, and those rotations and different age class of pine trees, you can really put deer bedding where you want it. So if you have food plots or ag fields, you know, clear cut a section by it. And then you've got a thicket, a bedding thicket right by your food source. And so that can absolutely help benefit your food plots or your you know, ag field, or where you're going to try to hunt the deer. So it's not only just creating bedding, because the you know, deer can bed anywhere down here for the most part, but it's creating bedding where you want it. And then, just like before, the ground disturbance, the early successional disting, the fire, all that is just incredible food for deer. I mean, I, there's so much great content out there. Uh, the Mississippi State University, um, Deer Lab has got a great podcast. The University of Florida Deer Lab has a great podcast. And they've done a ton of research as far as the crude protein levels that come from these native plants. I mean, they rivaled planting soybeans um, and some of the best food plots you could think of. And so, and there's a huge cost difference between food plots, especially, you know, this year with the cost of everything going up and burning. And so, you, you the benefits, you the most best bang for your buck, man, to tool, I think, is fire. Um, and, of course, you know, we, we do have food plots, and food plots are great. I mean, food plots are absolutely key to have. Have a destination, um, you know, food source that so you hunt over, or you hunt them traveling from the bedding site to the food plot. Um, lastly, to kind of wrap this up about deer, I think it's something that Dr. Craig Harper the University of Tennessee has said many times, I've heard him say many times, is that he likes to look at a property from, you know, 10,000 feet up, look at the aerial map, and then 
try to carve your farm up in sections of like 100 to 200 acres, you know, however, however, you know, fits well or smaller sections and then, and then give the deer everything they need in those one to 200 Mm. acre sections. I like that Bedding, idea. the food and water. And, you know, you're, because his point with that is, is that most doe groups are using about 100, 200 acres. You give them everything they need in that section. And then you, I mean, you, you can, you can create a white, you know, a, not white, a wildlife mecca, a paradise on a pine farm. There's ways of doing it. And it's not all about having massive bean fields and, you know, oak groves chock full of acorns. Do you think that same Dr. Harper recommendation would work? I mean, how many, I, I'm guessing a lot of guys that are listening to this don't have land period, let alone buy, you know, 500 acres. So you could have a hundred acre parcels. Can you do the same thing on an 80 or a 40, you know, take, take an 80 and divide it up into 10 or excuse me, eight, 10 acre quadrants, if you will, and then focus food, water, cover, in that 10, next 10, food, water, cover, next 10. I mean, is that how you'd go through it, do you think? Just kind of quadrant it off and start improving it? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it, it, you know, and then going back to what the first thing that, I, you know, uh, Dr. Harper would say is that, you know, look at your neighborhood. That's why you look at it from aerial from 2,000 feet up, or maybe 20,000, I don't know the exact elevation. But point is, look and see what your neighbors have. You know, it, if your neighbors, for instance, if you have 88, 50 acres, and you're surrounded by ag fields, and they're farmed row crop fields, then I would focus on bedding. Offer what they don't offer, sure. That's right, and and that's probably not going to change. I mean, that might, but I focus on that, but if it's nothing distinct like that, I would do what you said. I I would have, I, I, I would try to have a little bit of everything, cover, food, and then water. As far as water, you know, some of our property we do have uh, a, a nice swamp, and we have a good spring-fed creek system. But we also have a lot of you know area where we don't have natural water. But there's ways that you can manipulate ditches and you know low-lying areas for like for you know water holes that can they can hold a good amount of water. Yeah. Um, I just listened to I just listened to a podcast about that um, on the land podcast with Jake Hofer. He had a guy. Uh, from Wisconsin, actually, and he was talking about water holes. And I, if I recall right, he actually said, you know, if I had to make a decision on where I was going to spend my money, it wouldn't be on a food plot, it would be on a water hole. And I'm thinking about this quadrant idea, food, water, shelter. I don't know that I'd put in eight water holes uh, every 10 acres on an 80-acre plot, but I might put them, I might put three or four and then yeah. have those quadrants, food and shelter with water and three or four of them, because I do think different doe groups would set up in those different areas. And then the bucks will travel from quadrant to quadrant, knowing there's water there. That might be, that's an interesting concept. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, my, I focus more on cover, on bedding. That's my, that's what I think is more important is covering bedding. Um, so if, if it was a smaller property, I would focus more on bedding. You have good cover. Deer are going to be in there. Yeah, farms are going to be in there. And they can get most of their there. water from. They can get their food yeah. and their water from the browse. Most of it. So right. I would and, agree. And, and you don't have necessarily have to spend a ton of money on big food plots. I mean, there's, there's a lot of little land work you can do by just so much of it is just opening the canopy, 
getting sunlight and ground disturbance. I yeah. mean, you can take a hook of a, a harrow up to a four-wheeler or maybe even the back of a truck. I've seen some people do. It's just ground disturbance, you know, in sunlight. And that can give you a lot from the, from the native natural I would, I would totally agree with that. That's a great point. Actually on my farm, I talk about my farm Indian Creek quite a bit and i am been, I started off the first couple of years, just kind of forcing it to produce food plots. And I found very quickly that I've got the Southern area tends to be sandier. Anything I plant down there, it's just, if I don't get good moisture, it's like the Sahara desert. It literally looks like beach sand in some areas. And, um, the Northern area is better soil and I'm getting better food plots. And, um, so I've kind of been coming to this realization as I have been talking to folks like you about how to manage my own farm. And I guess selfishly I'm picking your brain and I'm putting it to use in my place, but I think you're right. I think the habitat, uh, cover first, cause you get cover and food, um, water could be added, but it's not quite as needed, I guess. Cause I have, I have water, but a couple man-made water holes, but, the tonnage that can be produced, Matt Dye from Land and Legacy told me 3,000 pounds, I think, per acre. If you open up the canopy 100% and get that sunlight to the ground, that explosion of growth, and that's the disturbance that you're talking about up here. You know, it's probably chainsaw disturbance because I'm not going to run a disc through it. So that's our way. And maybe fire. Uh, fire is a little scarier for me. I, I, can't seem to get my fire department to come and help me and nor do I have the skills to do it myself or the buddies to help me, but fire would be a disturbance, but that chainsaw disturbance is probably the best, best thing I can do. And, and that's exactly what Matt said, you know, pick a couple of zones and, and then obviously pick your entrance and exit routes, pick your wind, keep your wind in mind and maybe set it up so that you, I come in from different winds and then have different clear cuts, little micro clear cuts. And he was recommending, you know, three acres tops. And even that might be on the high end, smaller, uh, one acre ish, half acre, you know, thickets, I guess is the way to go. And up here you you open up a thicket. It's about a three year process. I would say until you get eight, 10 foot tall growth in there. If you have good disturbance and sun exposure, it'd be about a three year process to get there. Yeah. That that, that sounds spot on. Matt died and Adam Keith there. There's some great guys, very super knowledgeable. Yeah, they are. Well, great, man. Well, hey, um, I've been trying to keep these podcasts a little bit a little bit shorter for my listeners because they're driving and they get to destinations and they can't complete it. But we're at about 50 minutes, and I'm just going to go ahead and end it here. And I want to thank you for coming on, and you're really accomplished. And, folks, if you're, if you're looking for some of Mark's work, Meat Eater, he's got his uh, website, Southeast uh, Whitetail. He's on Instagram, Mark Haslam on Instagram. Is there any other um, places where people want that you want people to go looking for you or do you want to throw out numbers? You can go ahead if you'd like. Yeah, I, I, you, you hit everything, southeastwhitetail.com. And I launched a podcast back in February, uh, Southeast Whitetail Podcast. Great. I'll have to listen for that. It's out there. And, I, you know, what, what I'm trying to focus on, South, when I, the, the, the idea with Southeast Whitetail is to showcase um, – and to promote uh, hunting and wildlife and conservation in the southeast, uh, you know, you know, just you know, beyond beyond deer too. And so, 
a lot of my guests, I, I've had professors and biologists talk about conservation stuff and hunting. And so it's, um, that's it. So yeah, please uh, reach out and I'm always looking for people to talk to. So I appreciate you having me on, Neil. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, Mark, I appreciate it. And I'll be, I'll be a new follower on your podcast. So when you hear that bell go ding, that was me. <laughs> All right, buddy, well, you get back it. to management and we'll, we'll talk to you soon. And thanks again for coming on. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye.